Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming back Monsignor Charles Pope. Well, we got a big task tonight because I've got to try to get through a whole book of the Bible in an hour. I'd like to begin kind of like with an opening, with an opening prayer, um, a few introductory remarks, and into the opening prayer, which is actually a, it's a hymn. And if, if it plays properly, uh, well, you can hear it also sung. But I, I will say this, that uh, the, the Song of Songs is, of course, a great love song. And uh, as we'll see, there's different attitudes about what, it, what it's about, but... Fundamentally, it is a love song, and I, I will argue with you tonight, it's a great love song, a, a wedding song between Christ and the church, between God and His people. And uh, therefore, we, we want to see it in the, in the light of, of, of that beautiful allegory. All the fathers of the church, and, and going all the way back to the very beginning, saw it that way. So with that in mind, I want to read these, these words to you as a kind of a an opening prayer, they're the, the words of a hymn, and then I hope to play it, and you'll recognize the tune when you hear it played, if it, if it does play. But the basic words go like this, and again, remember, the Bible begins with a wedding, and it ends with a wedding. Adam and Eve, at the end of the church, at the end, the beautiful bride coming down from heaven, beautiful, uh, as a bride, uh, for, dressed for her husband, and the beautiful wedding feast of the Lamb that's celebrated in the book of Revelation. So, as we begin with a wedding and we end with a wedding, there is this beautiful wedding song that we sing in Advent. And uh, these are the, some words I'll share with you as a prayer, and we'll also hear it sung. Wake, awake, oh with tidings thrilling, the watchmen all the air are filling. Arise, Jerusalem, arise. There's the bride, right? Midnight strikes, no more delaying. The hour has come, we hear them saying. Where are, where are ye all, ye virgins wise? For the bridegroom comes in sight. Raise high your torches bright. Alleluia. The wedding song swells loud and strong. Go forth and join the festal throng. For Zion hears the watchman shouting. Her heart leaps up with joy undoubting. And she stands and waits with eager eyes. See her love from heaven descending. Adorned with truth and grace unending. Her light burns clear, her star doth rise. For now comes our precious crown, Lord Jesus, God's own Son, Hosanna. Let us prepare to follow there, where in thy supper we may share.
There's our opening prayer, all right? You know, I want to say that um, that's a beautiful old hymn. I hope you do sing it in your parishes. And um, it's originally a German, a German chorale. Bach and others set it to great, great musical works. But it's basically a good introduction to what we're looking at tonight. This idea of a great wedding feast. Uh, a wedding that's being prepared, and the bride is eager for the arrival of the groom. Now, most of you, we, we, weddings in America, we're always waiting for the bride. And uh, she makes her entrance, and she's usually a little late, huh? But in, in Jesus' time, and even today in many parts of the world, it's the groom who makes the entrance. And uh, the bridesmaids actually hold up torches, and they, they welcome the groom. But there's this great thrill that goes up as the groom arrives. And in every Mass you celebrate, at least on Sundays, that's kind of pointed to when the priest walks the aisle. And when, in my own congregation, when, you know, wherever you are, people gather. And then when the priest is ready and all the other liturgical ministers are in the back, everybody stands and they, they sing a hymn of praise, not to welcome Father Pope. Who cares about him? It's Jesus who's walking the aisle, right? Because in holy orders, we're configured to Christ. And in the liturgy particularly, the priest, if you will, represents Christ. He makes, he's a sacramental presence of Christ in the assembly. And so Christ walks the aisle, and the whole congregation rises to welcome, not Father Pope, but Jesus, who walks the aisle. So you see the vision here, right? That it's a great wedding feast. Every Mass is a wedding feast. And the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And so this hymn, in a way, gives us a good introduction uh, to what we have to prepare tonight. It's not an aside, but it's at the heart of it. Now we look then to the Song of Songs as a book of the Bible, and I'll just tell you a couple of introductory points. There are different theories about, of course, there always are in Bible research and Bible studies and different schools of thought. There are, I would say though, I would say about three schools of thought about what is the Song of Songs. One school of thought, I, I would call it the very low, low school of thought, is that it's just a collection of love poems. Get over it. It's in the Bible because it's okay, but it's just, that's all it is. It doesn't mean to be anything else. It's just a celebration of human love. Move on. Nothing to see here. Well, you know, you know the church too well to know that that's not how we treat Scripture, right? The question then is, all right, if, if that's all it is, then first of all, we're forgetting the Holy Spirit's really the author of the Bible, amen? And he put it there and penned it for a reason. Okay, so a second school of thought says, well, okay, it's a little bit more than just a love poem or a, you know, a collection of love poems that were common at the time, but it's also a celebration of monogamous traditional marriage. And it basically says, and you'll see that in this, in this poem, things are hinted at, but it, it's always, there are several, there are five or six different reminders. Whoa, this belongs in marriage. And this is a celebration then of marriage and marital love and a kind of a teaching that this belongs there, a tender, intimate, yes, sexual, yes, uh, erotic love. It belongs there in a marriage. And that's where it's to be celebrated. And so it's kind of a, a moral teaching. Okay, fine. But again, the third school of thought would say, all of that's fine. These are certainly love poems that were collected uh, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and certainly point to the beauty of, of the sacrament of holy matrimony, certainly. But beyond that, they're also an allegory for the great love of God for His people, and particularly Christ for His church. Christ the groom, 
church, the church is the bride. And that, of course, would be the approach I'll take with you a bit tonight, but in a, in a particular way also to focus a little bit on not just the overall relationship, but in particular what we call the spiritual life. And the spiritual life is a, um, it has stages. And if any of you have ever read St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, if you've studied, again, any of the great mystics, uh, you know, or, or again, St. Francis de Sales and all the great writers of Western theology, they all speak of stages in the spiritual life. And just to quickly summarize, the three stages are the purgative way, where we purge ourselves of sinful drives and worldly desires. So the purgative stage, the illuminative phase, where we begin to see our relationship with God deepen and grow more mature. And finally, the unitive phase, where we begin to enter into a very deep union with God. And these, I would argue that this book shows forth these stages. But I want to suggest to you that this book, this collection of love poems, first of all, it is poetry. So we're not talking about very clear, you know, point-by-point point intellectual discourse. As poems, they're going to speak in soft focus. And they're, but I would still argue that it's pretty clear that there's a development in the relationship between the bride and the groom at the time. Now, the one who changes throughout it all is the bride, not the groom. And that's not out of any dissing of women, but remember, God doesn't change. God doesn't need to purify his love for us. God does not need to come to a deeper, richer understanding of love. We, the members of the bride, we do. So the bride here typifies the church or the individual who relates to God. And, of course, the groom typifies Christ or God in general, God the Father. And uh, so... Realize here that the real development we're going to trace is in the bride. And uh, again, this is no dissing of women. Again, that we're the ones who grow and God, of course, doesn't need his love purified. Now, with that in mind, you'll notice then these stages. I'm going to argue that these stages take place. And they're all, all these stages end with a certain statement. Now, each phase, each of these phases ends with this particular statement in this or very similar words, I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, do not awaken or stir up love until it is ready. Oh, my brothers and sisters, can we please relearn this message? Just at the human level, human love? We've lost any sense of courtship. We've lost any sense of growing in a relationship so that a couple meets and there's a courtship and adults help to oversee it and supervise it. Remember the old chaperoning and remember some of those things that we used to do? You help love to grow, to mature, and then, and only then, is there marriage and then sexual intimacy. Today, sex on the first or second date and we're off to the, and the whole thing crashes and burns in 10 seconds, all right? It's a terrible loss of wisdom. We rush love. We rush it. So what we want to see, therefore, is this warning is all throughout this text. Because I'm going to be honest with you, this is a celebration of what we might call romantic love, but let's regain a word that we've lost to the secular culture. It's also a celebration of erotic love. Now, Pope uh, Benedict, in his 
encyclical Deus Caritas Est argues the same thing. We have lost this word to the secular world who has pornified it. The porn for, you know, the, the, the just, it's all about pornography today. As soon as you hear the word erotic or eros, you think porn, you think sex. There's a, there is a beauty. Remember the four words for love that the Greeks said, eros? That's that, if you will, that romantic love, that intense love that draws, that, that love of attraction that's meant to draw men and women together and, and draw them into that beautiful union of marriage. There's also, again, we, we, we would speak of philos, meaning brotherly love. There's storge, meaning family love. And then there's agape, that high form of love that, that we love God above all things and our neighbor for ourselves. We love God simply for His own sake, above all things, above all people. It's just a pure love just for the sake of the other. So, these types of love, but erotic love is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. In its proper place, celebrated properly, yes, it's wounded by sin, but of itself, it's beautiful. And so, this is a celebration of that. But again, it's something that should never be rushed. So, this adjuration occurs all these times, and I would argue breaks the text into stages. And the stages then basically are this. First of all, we see her situation. And she's in bad shape. The woman, as we start out, is in bad shape. We'll look at that. We see also, then, her seeking. In her bad shape, she's looking, looking for someone to save her. We never preach sin and repentance in the church except to point to the Savior and say, look for Him, repent, and look for Him to come. So we see her, her situation, we see her seeking, her sensing. She begins to grow and see her beloved behind every tree, every cleft, every rock. And so we begin to see God in creation. We see Him everywhere. We hear Him. And we, we begin to grow in our, our, our appreciation and our sense of God. We see next to not only that, but her struggling. Love needs purification. The course of true love never did run smooth. An old saying goes, yes? Somebody say amen now. <laughs> the course of true love never did run smooth. All right. When we love someone, we care, and when we care, whoops, we get, in, we get hurt easily. And our, our, we're very easily struggling with, with what the other's doing or not doing. And so there is a struggling to see love purified. And then we move from her struggling to her strengthening, and finally to her sealing, by which I mean the wedding. The wedding comes. The final pages of this speak, if you will, the wedding. Now, First of all, I'd like you to note her situation. But what's interesting is, and I show you this in the notes, we really don't start with her situation right away. We start with what I would argue is a proleptic postscript. Now, what's a proleptic? A proleptic in, in grammar and in, in literature is something that speaks of something that's in the future as if it were present now. So these opening lines bespeak the end of the story. And if you will, you know, and you've seen how uh, in movies this is sometimes done. You see a scene, and you're trying to figure it out, and then, it's, then it fades back and it says, six months earlier. Remember? See? Ah! Now we're going to go back and say, so you see the end of the story, and then in a way the bride is saying here, let me tell you how it all began. So the, the, we're really reading the end of the story here in the opening line. So let me just read it quickly. Because I would say to you, particularly because of a couple lines, this bespeaks a completed marital love, a marital embrace. So, the woman speaks. The W always means woman. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. 
for your love is better than wine, better than the fragrance of your perfume. Your name is a flowering perfume. Therefore, young women love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me to his bedchambers. Let us exult and rejoice in you. Let us celebrate your love. It is beyond wine. Rightly do they love you. So there's this great cry. Look, all the women in the world, you chose me. Everyone desires how beautiful you are, how wonderful you are. And the idea of the king brings me to his bedchambers. And you're going to see this is not lust. This is not a fornication or adultery. This is purified love. This is a marital embrace that's being described. Because you're going to see all throughout there's a warning that we not allow love to be, to be, if you will, before its time. So we see here, that's kind of a, a, proleptic, a proleptic prelude here. We're, we're seeing here, we go to the end of the story. And now, in a way, she says, all right, let me tell you how it all began. And we go back now to her problematic position. So we're going to read now her situation. So as we enter into this now, we're going to see that she is in trouble. And she is us. It's us here, all right? And by the way, I'm only selecting certain verses. We just don't have time to read every verse. So I'm trying to give you these notes, and then hopefully you can kind of go and say, okay, I kind of see the rhythm of this thing, and I hope you read the whole book, all right? Now, the problematic position. It begins like this. She says, I am black and beautiful, daughters of Jerusalem, like the dents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I'm so black, because the sun has burned me. The sons of my mother were angry with me. They charged me with the care of vineyards, but my own vineyard I did not take care of. Now, let's um, diffuse a couple of things. Some translations say, I am black but beautiful. St. Augustine, among others, says, Really, the translation should be, I am black and beautiful. But listen, let's be careful. Don't read our racist struggles in this culture back into that time. First of all, she is not an African. She's a Shulamite. A Shulamite would be a fellow. She's an Israelite woman. She lives in an area, uh, you know, again, where the Shulamites live, which is somewhere near, you know, modern-day Samaria, somewhere in the middle of, of ancient Israel. So she's, we're not talking about some, Af some hatred of African-American or darker skin or any of that stuff. But rather, she, she explains why her skin is so dark. Because to the people in that time, darker skin meant generally that you were in the lower classes and you had to work outside. Richer classes stayed inside, their skin was fairer. People who were poor worked out in vineyards, they worked in the fields, they worked you know, herding sheep and goats, they, they worked outdoors and their skin was darker. The richer class tended to be of a fairer skin. And she goes on to basically explain, look, although I'm from a very wealthy family because they own vineyards, and you didn't own vineyards without being pretty wealthy in those times. So she's a member of a wealthy family, but she says, but let me explain to you, if I'm wealthy, in a wealthy family, why my skin is darker. The sun has burned my skin. I've been out working. Why was I working in the vineyards? She doesn't exactly say what it is, but some undisclosed indiscretions from the past have caused her brothers, apparently the father is dead, the brothers to consign her as a punishment to work in the vineyards. So she says here, I was charged with the care of vineyards, but my own vineyard, my own soul, I did not take care of. So this is a woman who's in trouble. Okay? Don't get stuck on the word black. 
That's our issue. That's not theirs, okay? There is an issue maybe of class, but it's more about explanation. It isn't uh, good versus bad or any of that stuff. It's simply, she's explaining, though, her condition. Why am I, a woman born into a wealthy family, why do I have a darker complexion, which means I have to work outdoors? Why am I working in the vineyards when my family owns the vineyards? And she tells us, I didn't take care of my own vineyard, and my brothers consigned me to work there. All right. Now, she is us. Until we have met Christ, we are sinful. We used to live in a garden, and we walk with God. In the dew, in the cool of the morning, or the cool of the evening, as the dew was collecting on the grass. And we were in friendship with God. Members of the household of God. But we sinned, and we were excluded. And we were told that only by the sweat of your brow will you get your food to eat. Now hard labor for women to bring forth their children. Hard labor for men. Laboring in the vineyards. Not rejoicing in the ownership of them, but laboring weighed down with our sin, weighed down with our struggles. Welcome to the purgative way. The first initial part of our spiritual relationship with God is the purgative way, where we accept the fact that I am a sinner, I need mercy, that my sins have weighed me down, that my sins have caused me harm, and they cause other people harm, and that I am in desperate need of help. So we start out with her situation, which is our situation, as we begin our walk with God, our betrothal, our engagement, if you will, with God. God sees us, He loves us, but we're in bad shape, and we need a Savior. So you see the vision here, right? We start out with her situation, which is bad. I got it bad, <laughs> and that ain't good. But thank the Lord. There is a doctor in the house. So that leads us then to the next situation. If you will, her seeking, I might also maybe change this to her Savior. But again, we see somewhere in the depths of our heart, we begin to see that I am in trouble. But I've heard there's someone who speaks the truth in love, who can come and help me put my disordered life into order that the, quote, blackness of my sin can be washed away. That my, 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 my struggles, my hurts, my heartaches, because of my sins and because of other people's sins inflicted on me, can be healed. Oh, thank you, Lord. So, her situation is bad, but there is a doctor. And now, now we go then to her seeking. Now, I break this into several steps. There's a kind of a, she sees, she spies on a kingly shepherd. Does that remind you of anybody? There's a certain kingly shepherd who says, whoo, again, we're celebrating here, attraction. And so I, I, I play with you a little bit, but the text itself, of course, does use erotic, and again, in the proper sense of that term, it uses romantic imagery, all right? So we see that there is this attraction. Of course God's attracted to us. He made us. He loves us. I don't know if you know this, but you're, you're wonderful to God. He loves you. He sees you in all of your ideal. He knows what your sins have done to you, but He already knows you in your perfected state. God didn't make you because He disdained you. He made you because He loves you. 
That's what God's attracted to you. And you are called to wake up and start to become attracted to Him. And so we see, and again, I'm only selecting from, the, from these first chapters here, these texts. She sees this kingly shepherd, who should remind you of another kingly shepherd we've all come to know. And she says to him, tell me whom my soul loves. Well, that's a very mature love, right? We're talking here about, whoo, you look fine. I mean, it's not a mature love yet, is it, right? See, it's kind of based on just physical or, you know, attraction or you could do something good for me, hmm? right? Ooh, he's rich. Ooh, he's, you know, whatever. You see the idea. That's an immature love, right? But nevertheless, it's, it's a beginning. It's a beginning. Tell me, you whom my heart, so my soul loves, where you shepherd and where you give rest at midday. Why should I be like one wandering after the flocks of your companions? And he responds with an invitation. Her inquiry becomes his invitation. If you do not know, most beautiful among women, follow the tracks of the flock and pastor your lambs near the shepherd's tents. Now, I give you some footnotes to remind you of some, some of these things that are echoed in the New Testament. So you remember one day when Jesus was walking by, Andrew and, and, uh, and, and Peter saw him and they said, Hey, Rabbi, where do you stay? And he said, Come and see. It's a very similar dialogue, isn't it? Right? Right? Uh, so we see her inquiry. We see his invitation. But then there becomes an intensification. So again, the man speaks. Ah, oh, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariotry, I compare you, my friend. Your cheeks are lovely in pendants, your, necks in, your neck in jewels. And then she cries out, My lover to me is a cluster of henna from the vineyards of Engedi. How And he responds, How beautiful you are, my friend. How beautiful your eyes are like doves. And the woman, how beautiful you are, my lover. Handsome indeed. In his shadow I delight to sit. And his fruit is sweet to my taste. He brought me then to his banquet hall. His glance, he glanced, his glance at me signaled love. Strengthen me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love, she cries out. Now, here too, you see, there's an intensification, but a kind of a, well, to use the language of romantic love, there's a kind of a swooning. Woo! She's almost drunk with love. And we all know that feeling. Be careful, my friends. <laughs> Be careful. Love is not yet mature, all right? We have, we have here a, a need for this to, to mature, but it's a beginning. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But it does, you need to be careful, right? Now, this idea, uh, you know, this, this, this beautiful idea of, uh, of you know, these, the, you know being, being taken care of, and, and uh, you see some of these footnotes I give you, and I won't read them all to you, but you see some references in the Psalms. How precious, O Lord, is your steadfast love. The children of mankind take refuge in the shelter of your wings. See, all of these things are echoed in the Bible, right? These are ways we also speak about God. We speak about the Lord, and we, we call, How sweet, O Lord, are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. All these things echo what this couple is saying back and forth. Now, notice again, the Lord has a desire for you. you he loves you. He even likes you. And there is this remarkable, if you will, gift just to know that you're loved. Now, you see, the, the problem for this is, how many people feel very unloved? God is distant. They don't feel that God loves them, and they don't think that they're worthy of His love or worthy of other people's love. I mean, I could name thousands I've met 
We all struggle with it to some degree, but some downright pathological. I have met some very beautiful women who come, and yet they don't think they're beautiful, they don't think they're lovable, and they feel brokenhearted. Likewise, I, men as well, men don't express it quite the same way, but there's a sense, I haven't done what I need to do, I'm a disgrace, nobody loves me, all I want to do is just disappear. See, Somewhere, you need to know, God didn't make you to hate you. He made you because he, because he does love you and to love you. So he has a desire for you and an attraction. He cries out on the cross, I thirst for you. So there's his attraction, and there's her attraction for him. So again, we see that her love, though, is beautiful, that the attraction is good, it's a good thing, it's a beginning, but it's not yet mature. And so here comes the warning. I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the doves of the field, do not awaken or stir up love until it is ready. Now, why, does, why the gazelles and the doves of the field? Because at the slightest crack of a sound, they scatter, they fly, they run. And if you stir up love, too quickly, it runs, it flees. And we all know that, amen? Sometimes, again, we, we move too quickly and feelings are hurt and people aren't ready and a lot of anger and frustration and real hurt comes, all right? So we see here a warning. Remember, love needs to grow. Love has its stages. So we've seen her situation. She's in bad shape. She sees someone who can bless her and help her and get her out of her situation. But, and so she begins to seek for him. But even that seeking itself tells us there are some problems there that need, if you will, maturing. But the seeking is good. Now you see, sometimes you'll find people in the spiritual life who've had a, a major conversion. Bless the Lord! But it's kind of immature. It's kind of rooted in a lot of emotionalism. Whew! You know, they had, a, they had an experience in church or, you know, some kind of, in a lot of the charismatics, you know, it's like, what? Hallelujah! And, you know, and it's great. Great, it's great. But the nature of human emotion is, you hear the word motion in emotion? It kind of passes through, doesn't it? And if that's all that's sustaining you, you're kind of heading for a, a little bit of a letdown. We can only sustain this type of love or attraction for so long. It has to deepen. So the attraction is there to begin, if you will, to, to begin the relationship, but it's got to get deeper. You know, come on, y'all. Romantic love is a beauty. It's a great thing, right? But it's got to come in for a landing, right? See? And if, if, if you know, marriages, and most of you have been married for more than about two days, you know, know that uh, it's got to come in for a landing. You've got to get practical, and you've got to kind of let that love develop into a mature, specialized, I would argue, not a, just a regular friendship, but a specialized friendship that's intimate, but it's, it's, it's rooted in loyalty, it's rooted in, in, in common things and values, like children, certainly land, property, all that, but children, future, value, and ultimately salvation. So if, and if it isn't, all the, pardon the expression, but all the wild sex in the world isn't going to supply for it. It has to be rooted in something better and longer-lasting and, 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 and deeper than simple physical attraction or physical pleasure. All right? And that's why there's a warning here. She's swooning with love. And some people who have had a sudden conversion to the Lord, they have all this emotional thing, and oh, they can't wait to go to the next church service and get excited. And, but all of a sudden, it starts to cool off. See? 
So you've got to be careful. It's not just a problem with human love and romantic love, but it's a problem with our spiritual growth. So we start to see, um, I don't have as much time to develop this next section on her sensing, but we, we start to see that when you're in love, everything reminds you of your beloved, right? You know, and you, you've heard love poems, right? Or is it too long ago? I don't know. <laughs> but you know, when you're, when you're in love, you're like, everything reminds you. You know, and you're always thinking of the person and around every corner. Are they there? You know, and, and again, so we see that um, I don't have time to develop or read all these texts to you, but notice in the next page, her sensing. She, she begins to excitedly see her lover. So the sound of my lover, here he comes, springing across the mountains, leaping the hills like a gazelle, like a young stag. See, he's standing behind our wall and he's gazing through the window, peering through the lattice. And my lover speaks and says to me, Arise, my beloved, my friend, my beautiful one, and come. Surge amica mea. So we have this, by the way, I often use this when somebody asks me to preach a, 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 a time of adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, and they don't give me some, some topic. I often use this text. Listen to this. Think of you kneeling in church, and the monstrance, and Jesus is there, and there's that glass in the monstrance. My lover, he comes, springing across the mountain, leaping the hills like a gazelle or a young stag. See, standing behind our wall, gazing through the window. That's Jesus when you're at Eucharistic adoration. Gazing through the window with love. Are you praying with me? Now, I know for us men, this kind of romantic stuff, we don't relate to Jesus exactly that way. But you can hopefully, you know, you can stylize it enough so that you can see, Right? That there's this look of love. We look at him with love and he looks through the window at us with love. Something is still separating, but we see him there and he sees us. And there is this look of love. So again, uh, we see that um, in, in creation, if you really love God, you start to see and marvel in creation the stars, the planets, the mountains, the hills, even the small little things, the intricacies of creation. <gasps> Thank you, Lord. You know, those who are growing in the spiritual life just begin to become mystics on the move. <gasps> this reminds me of God. That reminds me of God. You remind me of God. <gasps> I'm all, everything's reminding me of God. So, again, as we grow in the spiritual life, we begin to have great gratitude and appreciation for the things that God does for us. And that he, he makes, and we say, wow, Lord, you've done all things well. Hallelujah. So, again, there is this sensing. Her, she's deepening her appreciation of her lover. It's more than just his, his curves or his handsomeness or the possibility of being intimate with him. Now it's, what does he do? <gasps> Look at his works. Look at, and there's an appreciation that starts to deepen. Again, in sighs and wandering. So, uh, she sees him in signs and wonders, in sighs and wandering. She says, uh, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Oh, and again, when you're really newly in love, you just can't wait the next time to see that person or to talk to them, hear their voice, see their face. Then she says here, on my bed at night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I didn't find him. Let me rise and go all about the city, through the city square. Let me seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I still didn't find him. And the watchman found me as they made their rounds. He whom my love soul loves, have you seen him? Now, I find this as a priest, a lot of people who are in this stage of their spiritual life, 
It's growing, it's deepening. And I'll often say, Father, what can I do? Can I start spiritual direction? Or can you teach me more about the Bible? Is there a Bible study? And people begin to look. They search. They're yearning, thirsting for the voice and the face of God. Like I suppose some of you here tonight. Hmm? Aren't you seeking Him? Even when you don't know you're seeking Him, you're seeking Him. See, again, there is this, teach me, go to the watchmen. The, the, the watchmen, by the way, were, well, in that culture, you needed a lot of watchmen at night. Because it was a dangerous world, like it is today, but even more so in a way, because you didn't quite have the settled political boundaries and armies, standing armies and things that were easily available. So every vineyard had a watchtower. Every, every agricultural area had a watchtower where people kept watch through the night so that thieves or animals or whatever didn't come and wreck the crops. And likewise in the cities, on the high on the city walls, the watchmen. Likewise in the cities, you know, we call them constables on patrol now, cops. But they were watchmen, and they, they kept... So they were basically a security staff. And so if you were up late at night, you might run into one of the watchmen, you see. But again, the idea of a watchman, really spiritually, are those who are watching out, looking ahead, trying to protect from dangers. Ideally, I'm a watchman for you. Your parish priests, your deacons, spiritual friends are watchmen for you. They're keeping watch so you don't fall into traps, make mistakes, fall into sin, get confused, be confused by the errors of this time because we're surrounded by enemies. And among those who are your watchmen are those I listed, but you are watchmen for your children. Too bad, too bad so many adults and priests and others have decided, i got better things to do than warn people about stuff. And they've kind of given up on their idea of being a watchman. But again, she runs to those who protect her and say, have you seen my lover? Have you seen him? And then she says, suddenly she does find him. Hardly had I left him and I found him, whom my soul loves. I would not let go of him until I had brought him to my mother's house, to the chamber of her who conceived me. Whoops, you're getting a little fast there, young lady. <laughs> you know? And so again comes the warning. I assure you, daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the does of the field, do not awaken or stir up love until it is ready. Careful. Careful. You're not ready for the highest spiritual heights yet. You're not ready in this case. You're not ready for that intimate embrace that only belongs in marriage. And you're not ready to get married yet. You still need to let love grow. Okay, so we start to see these stages in this growth. Her love's getting better, stronger. She's not just how does he look, how does he sound, but what does he do, and how can I learn from him, and so on. But we do see um, that there's still some immaturity. And it's a little bit like Mary Magdalene. Remember, this is very much like Mary Magdalene. I cling to him, I wouldn't let him go! Warning! You know, I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem. And the scene ends. Remember, Mary Magdalene saw Jesus risen from the dead. She goes, Rabbani! And she grabbed onto him and started clinging him. Now, he said, Mary, don't go on clinging to me. Step back and take another look. Something's different. And I want you to see it. I want you to grow richer and deeper in your appreciation for who I am. Now, does anyone remember how the story goes? See, he says, he simply says to her, we don't know how, what she saw and how she reacted, but she stepped back and Jesus said, now go tell my brothers what you've seen. And when she runs to them, what does she say? She doesn't say, I saw Jesus. She doesn't just say, I saw the rabbi. I saw him, uh, the, the, you know, our, our, our teacher, our friend. What does she say? I have seen the Lord. With the definite article, ho kyrios. Brothers and sisters, she now sees that he's not just 
teacher, rabbi, friend, miracle worker, ethical teacher. He is the Lord. And that, my brothers and sisters, is a true Easter cry. Yes, it is true that Jesus has risen from the dead, but we don't simply have at Easter the resurrection of a corpse. We have the resurrection and the glorified humanity of Christ presented. And the real resurrection cry isn't just He's risen from the dead, but He is Lord. And if there ever comes a moment when the church doesn't say He is Lord, we're no longer the church. So, this vision, Mary, step back. Don't go on clinging to me. Step back and take a look. And she ran and she said, I have seen the Lord. See the the deeper, richer understanding, and that's what you start to see here. So we see then, again, I've got to continue to move quickly, but we see again um, her, her situation, her seeking, her sensing, now her struggling. There's a theme here that is constant in the scriptures of the desert. And you don't really even, you know, you, you, even just from our Catholic perspective, what's the desert all about? You know, that's about going out and purifying, praying, getting clear. Going into the desert is a, is a place of purification. It's a place of, uh, of growth, spiritually at least. We sense our littleness and God's greatness and we have time to think. And, but the desert's also a place where we encounter temptations. Jesus went into the desert. It says He was moved there by the Holy Spirit. And He went there and He certainly prayed for 40 days intensely with His Father. But He also encountered Old Scratch. The devil, right? And he refuted the devil with great wisdom by the word of God. But all these things are what the desert's about. In a word, purification. In a word, another word, encounter. And so, in love, this is a sign or a symbol that now her love needs to be further purified, further deepened. She needs to spend more time thinking, praying, getting to know herself, getting to know her lover, getting to know the one who she is seeking. And all of that's symbolized here. So the location that's extolled. Who is this coming from the desert? Uh, oh, by the way, the D means the daughters of Jerusalem. They're kind of a chorus of women who are singing. Who is this coming from the desert like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense? Again, daughters of Jerusalem, go out and look upon King Solomon. Children of God, go into the desert and look upon King Solomon. Look upon the Lord Jesus. Look upon Him. Learn of Him there in your spiritual life, except that there are going to be needs for desert experiences, fastings, prayings, all of these things which help us to grow. And even if we don't go, literally go into a desert, we ought to go on and take desert experiences where we turn the TV off, hello, turn off the internet, hmm? close the lid of that computer, maybe in Lent where we fast, we give up some things, we spend a little more time hopefully praying and being less enamored by things and distractions of the world, and we're more focused. That's the desert. All right. Now we see that, what does she hear in the desert? That love is expressed. So again, this is now the, um, the, the groom speaking. Notice he calls her my friend. There's an interesting thing there I want to talk about. You are beautiful in every way, my friend. There is no flaw in you. With me from Lebanon, my bride. So in the desert, she hears and experiences in a private beautiful way, the intense love of her kingly shepherd for her. It's chaste, it's intense, and she hears of it. Now, I want to return to this uh, idea 
of, the, um, uh, of this, this, this word friend. In our culture, friend is not usually a word we use for those who we're romantically in love with. We call them the one whom we love or whatever. And so it, when a young man says, uh, do you love me? Or when a young woman says, do you love me? He says, well, I think of you as a friend. Oops. But you see, this idea of discovering that my lover is my friend is an important depth that love needs to overcome. And so ideally, and those of you who've been married know this, I hope, more personally than me, but I just say I've done a lot of marriage counseling and uh, just, just trust me, that somewhere along the line that romantic thing has to come in for a landing, and if it doesn't, the whole thing's crashing. It's got to come in for a landing and become a kind of specialized friendship. I'm not talking drinking buddies kind of friendship. I'm talking about a specialized friendship where my lover is also my friend. That is to say, we're equal, we share things, we have things in common, shared interests, shared family members now, children together, memories, loyalties. And that's where marriage really begins to dig into the depths and becomes one of those things that lasts 45, 50, 60 years. Now, I understand it may be some difficulties and there may be some distinctions to be made. I don't have time to make them, but that is an important key to love. Jesus himself says to us, I no longer call you slaves because a slave doesn't know what his master is about. I call you my friends, for I've revealed to you everything that my father has taught. So he also wants us to find that relationship with him. He's always Lord. He's never just some dude in a bar. Okay? He's not just one of our drinking buddies. Never do that to Jesus. He is, though, a friend in the specialized sense, in that he stands by me. I share much in common with him. His views are mine. We have things, people, values, views in common. Our lives are knit together. And that kind of a friendship, a specialized friendship that always is respectful of him as Lord, but also as friend. Okay. Now, this idea of this no flaw, you might come from me, my bride, you've ravished my heart, and so on. All these beautiful expressions go back and forth in the desert. There's this beautiful line from Hosea, chapter 2, that kind of illustrates this. There comes a moment when God is, well, very brokenhearted, that his bride, remember the story of Hosea, it's a very strange story. Hosea is minding his own business, and God says, I want you to be my prophet. Okay. Uh, he says, now here's what I want you to do. Go marry a whore. And the impolite word is used, so I'm going to use it. It's not, go marry a prostitute. No. Go marry a whore. What, what, why? Because my bride Israel has been unfaithful to me, and I want you to image that. So he married a woman named Gomer. And uh, they had a marriage, it was a stormy marriage, and they had several kids, and they had these weird names like Loami and Lo Ruhamai, and these names that mean like no pity, no mercy. <laughs> Imagine naming your kids that. And then she leaves him to go back to being a prostitute. She prefers, pardon the expression, Johns to her own beloved husband. And he's brokenhearted and he cries out to God. And you know what God tells him? Go take her back. Go buy her back. He has to buy her back from the pimp. The pimp owns her now as a slave. And, 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 and now he has to literally spend money and buy her back. Why, why? Why? He says, because although my bride has forsaken me, I will never forsake my bride. 
And then there's this beautiful line in Hosea chapter 2 where the Lord says, Therefore says the Lord, Behold, I will allure her, Israel, his bride, I will lure her back into the desert and speak tenderly to, there, to her there. And on that day, declares the Lord, you will, no long, you will call me again my husband, no longer will you call me my Baal. And I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. See? So, all of this image of the struggling in the relationship, we struggle with our relationship. How many of us have fallen and we get back up? Some of us have strayed for long periods, but God keeps calling. He keeps calling, you're beautiful, my beloved. You're beautiful, my beloved. You're beautiful. Come back to me. And so God calls us into the desert, calls us away to once again recover our love, to purify it, and to let it grow deeper, and to let God speak tenderly to us in the desert. And there is this beautiful image of the exile where Israel had been massive misbehavior for hundreds of years, and God finally sent them across the desert into Babylon. But all of the stern talk of the prophets stopped after that, and God spoke tenderly. Early Jeremiah, severe. Early Isaiah, severe. Later Isaiah, later Jeremiah, and so on, tender, reassuring. Now that I've got you, honey, with me in the desert, let's recover the love we had, and let's let it grow. You see the vision? So here you have then romantic love celebrated, but also being an image or an allegory for our struggle to come to deeper relationship with God. So I've got to kind of move to the conclusion here. But you see again, we've gone through these, what I would argue are stages. And you see again, this stage also ends. I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my lover, what will you tell him? That I'm sick with love. Now that's the, that's the one one that's just worded differently. But notice, this time in the desert, has wake, it woke her up. It woke her up, and her love is deep now. It's rich, much richer. And then we see her strengthening. It starts out here where the choir asks her, the women, how does your love differ from any other lover most beautiful among women? How does your lover differ from any other that, that, that you adjure us so? Okay? And so she begins to give a, a series of descriptions of him, and I give you all the footnotes that speak of the the magnificence of God that we also speak of. My lover is radiant and ruddy. But go down to the footnotes. My lover is the light of the world. His law is more precious than gold. His insights are wisdom and peace. His face shines upon us. And so on it goes. So on it goes. Now again, look on the right column there. To the walnut grove I went, to see, uh, and, and so on. In other words, I went to the garden. I went aside so that my lover could not just caress me and tell me how beautiful I am and, and reassure me, but notice there at the bottom of that page, um, uh, the very last line before the highlighted, I adjure you. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house where you would teach me. So here we come to a point where you see love is growing richer and deeper, and in our spiritual walk with God, where we really say, Lord, I'm not just in for the goodies. I want you to teach me. And if, if your teaching means I need to change, I'll do it, Lord. Because, you see, I don't just want the goodies. I want you. I want your truth. And you are the truth. And you made everything through your word. And so I, I now want to know your truth. I hunger for your truth. You see, do you love the consolations of God or the God of all consolation? Do you love the goodies or the God who gives them? And what if the goodies weren't there? What if the consolations aren't there? Do you still love Him? Lord, teach me. And one of the things the Lord has to teach us is the cross. 
You're not always going to get everything you want, when you want it, and the quantity you want it. Our relationship has to be deeper than that. I've got work to do in your life. Is your love deep enough, rich enough, so that I might occasionally need to hide my face and do some pretty painful work in your life and help you to let go of some things? Is your love that deep? Or is it really just about you and the consolations and being called beautiful? Where, where's your love? So after all of this, we come finally to the wedding bells. The last section. After all of these things, we see finally the wedding comes. And what is the wedding for us? Well, we'll talk about that, but let's read some of the wedding. First of all, the wedding procession. Now remember, the groom processes, the groom enters, the groom makes the entrance in Jesus' time in those weddings, and at the time of this was written. Who is this coming from the desert, leaning upon her lover? Beneath the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother conceived you. There she bore and you conceived. And so again, there is this, uh, the groom comes and his beloved is with him. See? And they meet. There is, uh, and again, there are, a lot of old, there are a lot of allusions to other scriptural texts that I, that I give you here, and I, I, I wish I had time to look at all of them. But, but again, then comes the, the wedding song, but it's kind of in the form of some of our, the vows that we recognize. Set me as a seal on your heart. Hmm? So again, um, for love is as strong as death. We say in our wedding vows, till death do us part. Longing is fierce as Sheol. Its arrows are like fire, uh, the arrows of fire. It's the flame of the divine. Deep waters cannot quench love, nor rivers sweep it away. Were one to offer all the wealth of his house for love, he would be utterly uh, despised. So again, for richer, for poorer. See? So again, this love cannot be valued. It cannot be bought. It cannot simply be based on money or any worldly thing. It's stronger than death till death do us part. It, it just it stays and it will, it will go, remain. It, it, is, it is a love that's faithful, stable, consistent. It bears fruit. Well, then there's this funny interjection. The brothers show up again. <laughs> well, let's just say they come... <laughs> you see, in the ancient world, you had to have a, 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 a woman who was married had to have a dowry. And so the father had to come up with some money to get the family started. So they're trying to figure if they can negotiate a deal and come up with a lower price. Now, it says here, we have a little sister, but she has no breasts just yet. Uh, what should we do for our sister on the day that she's spoken for? Now, again, they don't understand the growth that she's gone through. We had to go through it quickly, I understand. But there shows there's a lot of growth. She's come through a lot of stages and a lot of growth here. So she's not just a little girl. She's grown up now. Okay, she's spiritually more mature. If she's a wall, we'll build upon her a silver turret. But if she's a door, I, uh, it's, uh, we will board her up with cedar planks. Now, again, they basically are saying that if she's really grown tall and mature, I guess we'll have to pay more money for her. I mean, we'll have to give her more money for the dowry. If, if, she's, uh, if she's just a door, in other words, if part, you know, you, you, I hope you don't take offense at it. If she's still promiscuous, uh, then we'll just we'll, we'll get off cheap. She says, I'm a wall! And my breasts are towers. The, the, the actually, the, put a D there. It's actually the woman saying, I have become in his eyes as one who brings peace. So again, the dowry is given. And again, the great dowry. Now listen, what is the price of your soul in the wedding feast that you have with God? See? See? Well, I have there in one of the footnotes for you. It's from Peter. It's the letter of Peter, right? Chapter 1 and verse 18 you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, or shall we say your brothers, um, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood 
of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the price, not the brothers. And he didn't wait for a bargain. He saw the price of your salvation, and he paid it all. And you know the price of your salvation, that death on a cross. Never underestimate. So she stands up for her. She says, I am a towering wall. I've made price. Not, not because of me, because of him. Your price, God is more than willing to pay the price for your soul. We often say, Lord, I'm not worthy. Well, you, need, you may not be worthy, but you're worth it. You're worth saving. Because God, when he saw the price, said, okay, and he paid it all. You go to a store and you say, hmm, here's the product, here's the price. Are you willing to pay it or not? Well, Jesus saw the price. And he paid it. He paid it all. He didn't negotiate or wait for a, a deal. He paid it all. And so the great arrival of the wedding feast. Finally then, we see the groom's arrival. You who dwell in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. Swiftly, my lover, like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountain spices. And suddenly it ends. But that's why I argue that the prologue was really the end of the story, and it's put at the beginning. So let's read the prologue one more time. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, better than the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is flowering perfume, therefore young women love you. Draw me after you. Let us now run. The king has brought me to his bedchambers. Let us exult then and rejoice in you, Lord. Let us celebrate your love, for it is beyond wine. So there's this beautiful image then of Finally going into the bedchambers. No final adjuration. I adjure you, not time yet, not time yet. Now it's time. And when will it be time for you and for me? Again, fundamentally in heaven. But even now, as our spiritual life grows and deepens, that's the beautiful image of this book. So here we are in Advent, longing for the coming of the Lord. His second coming, yes. But also that coming into our life more deeply, more richly with every passing year. Let me conclude then by saying to you that all the fathers of the church, you know, when you think of heaven, I'm, I'm afraid that we have a lot of work to do in our understanding of heaven. Brothers and sisters, you know, if you ask a person, what will heaven be like? They'll talk about streets with gold. I'll be able to play golf all the time I want. I won't get a flat tire. I won't lose my job. I, 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 I. It's very egocentric if you really listen. And I keep waiting. Well, they mention. They don't mention God. Brothers and sisters, the heart of heaven is to be with God, to be caught up into the life of the Trinity. Now, what's the life of the Trinity? It isn't the Father saying, there's the Son. Mm, hello, Son. Hi, Dad. And then there's the Holy Spirit. Listen, the love of the Trinity, the Eastern Fathers of the Church called it the divine parachoresis. And the parachoresis speaks a dynamic relationship of love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. So intense is that love that it's the third person of the Trinity. And there's this great movement of love between the members of the Trinity. It's like a dance. And so the fathers of the church and the Eastern church call it the divine perichoresis. To be caught up into the great movement of love in the Trinity. To be caught up into that great dance of love. The angels were caught up into it. Now we one day will be caught up into that full dance of love. And it will be a dynamic experience of the powerful love of God for us and us for God and for each other. It is a great... This is, brothers, this, sisters, this is our future if we're faithful. It's our dignity. It's our future to be caught up into the powerful, awesome, beautiful movement of love that's in the Trinity. Not a static vision. This side looks at God and says, ooh, and that side says, 
Ah. We keep looking. Uh-huh. Hmm. 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 Ooh. Ah. You're caught up into the movement of love. Caught up into the dynamic movement of love between the persons of the Trinity. Caught up into the great dance of love. That's the perichoresis. Oh, brothers and sisters. You see, that's what books like this are about. Powerful movement of love that takes place between us and God, and likewise, ultimately, between, you know, what will be caught up into that beautiful wedding day that will be our entrance into the glory of heaven, to be caught up, the bride with the groom forever. And so the book of Revelation ends with a beautiful wedding, doesn't it? Look, he says, I saw the church, beautiful as a bride, coming down to meet her husband. See? And the great wedding feast of the Lamb had begun, and the hymns began, and the great wedding feast began. That's really what this book is finally all about. So bless you for your patience, and thank you.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.